MSW Media. So, Asha, has Mark Meadows' legal team found a way to keep him out of prison? Uh, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent and a legal contributor for ABC News. And I'm Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. Let's give the context here. Sounds good. Well, ABC News has some things to say about Mark. Speaking of ABC News, they have something to say about Mark Notos. So let's, we'll get to that. I just want to kind of lay the groundwork, which is Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, one of the central players in the whole January 6th conspiracy. True. He's right in the center of my self-coup chart. <laughs> People are following along. The name Mark came up many times in the January 6th hearings. We never heard from the guy, but his name was spoken. And Mark this and Mark that. The star witness, Cassidy Hutchinson, was his um, aide. And uh, so she was really giving us a window into the role that he played. And then he disappeared. No one has heard hide nor hair from this man. And there was a lot of speculation on whether... He was cooperating with special counsel Jack Smith when Smith um, issued an indictment on January 6th uh, for January 6th against Trump. um, He's not in there, really. Notably absent. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, It's not just that he's not in there. It's it's. It's that he's they, he's literally been written around. Yeah. Um, in other words, you know, other people aren't in there, but like we kind of can figure out that they are. Like Rudy Giuliani is there, even though he's not there. Like as an unindicted conspirator. Yeah. yeah. Me- Meadows is like not there. It's almost like you're kind of writing around the guy. Like it's like writing a story, but you don't want to mention the other person in the room because that's a surprise for chapter 14. Right. Well, the surprise in chapter 14 comes when <laughs> Bonnie Willis um, issued her indictment against these 19 defendants, uh, including Donald Trump and Mark Meadows. And this is where you said that there was uh, some reporting from ABC News. That's right. Um, and essentially what ABC News said um, was that, um, as, as Henry is greeting me here, okay, Henry needs to, uh, to, to lean against me here, uh, while I'm, while I'm talking. But, um, uh, what ABC News said, and this is really kind of the first time we've gotten a window into this, that Mark Meadows told Jack Smith's team that there was no standing order uh, to declassify documents. Uh, contradicting, um, Cash Patel, who we all, I think, we all understood that he was is very, very truthful during that, uh, during that, uh, supposed conversation, about that supposed conversation he had. He also said that to his, to his knowledge, the documents that were sent to, de- to Mar-a-Lago had not been declassified. That was pretty big. 
We don't know exactly what else Meadows has said, but it's apparent, I would say, from the way that Jack Smith wrote the indictment, that he contemplates Mark Meadows being his witness at trial. And so, in the Mar-a-Lago trial. No, I would say in the January 6th trial as well. In the January 6th trial. Yeah. Because, but the classified documents information relates to the Mar-a-Lago, so he's giving information on both. Right. Well, that's usually how it works at the feds. Like you can't, uh, you can't half cooperate. Uh, so he's being cooperative, and so it raises some very interesting questions. I think uh, a lot of our listeners may be wondering, well, what does this mean? Is he a flipper? Is like what? What sort of deal does he have? And we don't know for sure. Um, I, but I can explain sort of what I think some of the options are or what I think it is. What we do know is that now Trump and his team know what Meadows is going to say because they have the discovery in the federal cases so they can see these interview reports from FBI agents um, detailing what Meadows is going to say. And I think that's where these details, let's say, to ABC are coming from, uh, from those interview notes. Or those interview reports. So, in terms of what's uh, going on, by the way, I see you're enjoying. Is this um, blueberry bubbly? Am I right? It's a um, it's a blackberry bubbly. Okay, that's discerning taste. Um, Thank you. But uh, but uh, in any event, so what, what what's up with Meadows? Well, you know, Meadows has pursued like a very sophisticated legal strategy. He has a very good defense attorney who I know. Um, and his strategy with the January 6th committee, if you recall, was I'm going to produce, I'm going to produce a lot of texts and other documents that are going to be super damaging to Trump, but then I'm not going to testify. In fact, I'm going to negotiate potentially testifying and then like wig out at the last minute, which saved him from, it saved him from prosecution because it just made it more complicated because he kind of half complied with the subpoena. It wasn't like he was blowing him off like Bannon. And so the Justice Department was just like, let's not, this is going to be too hard. Like, let's not take this on. Um, And then here, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you want to like a prediction, hot take. My prediction is that Meadows has tried to take a sort of careful in-between position here. He perhaps wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if he, his attorney spent a lot of time talking to Jack Smith's team and said, we in on team Meadows think that he's not, I didn't, he did not commit a crime. He's a witness and he wants to be, he's willing to be a witness for you. If you agree with us and put him in the witness bucket, we're going to be a witness for you. And we're going to tell you what we do know. be, you know, but only if we see eye to eye on this, he doesn't want to be a flipper. He doesn't want to you know, get immunity. He doesn't want anything like that. He wants to just be a witness and be categorized that way. And we think if you understand. You get to do that, though. Like, what if you did commit crimes? Well. And and prosecutors are just like, well, we're just going to categorize you as a witness. And because otherwise, to acknowledge that you committed a crime would have to make you a. Yeah cooperator right like we're like and you plead guilty to that's something, right i guess it depends on the crime so for example if like me, me well coup. here's it yeah well if me let's just say me you um and your son all decided to rob a bank and hires the fancy lawyer and then he's like look i'm just a witness <laughs> i didn't i i was not that i may have had a mask on but i was just watching uh renato and asha right. rob the bank that he would not <laughs> be able to get away with that um but 
Um, in this, you know, in a case where there's an intent element, you can get away with it. I'll give you an example. Never said this before publicly, but I don't see any reason why it's a, it should be seen. I don't think, I think it's, you could discern it from public documents. You know, one of the biggest cases that I had tried was the first case against a high frequency trader type form of, um, for, first, first, uh, first the prosecution of the Dodd, the provision of the Dodd-Frank Act. And, it, the his programmer, computer programmer guy, w- was going to be a potential witness, and I didn't want to give him immunity. And I just took the position that he was a witness because this is a programmer guy. Like, I mean, you, could you have charged him? Yes. In fact, the, the Justice Department later charged a programmer who I represented and got acquitted. Um, if we're doing something similar, as a bad, but those are bad prosecutors. Uh, you know, w- w- what I took as a more sophisticated position that some programmer guy has no idea. He's just some programmer guy. You could take the position here that Meadows was like trying to fulfill his duties for Trump, but wasn't in on it and wasn't going to try to carry it forward and was very more careful. He was in the background talking to his lawyers at this mega law firm, making sure he was staying, you know, on one side of the line. That is at least, I appreciate that's a very charitable reading of things from Mark Meadows, but I think Jack Smith, he's savvy, and I think he decided that it's better to have Meadows inside his tent pissing out than outside his tent pissing in, so to speak, and taking a very hard-line view against Meadows and trying to charge Meadows and have a trial against Meadows as a defendant was not worth the, it. was not worth it. It was much better to have Meadows on team Smith effectively, even if it's, you know, he's not going to be, give him amazing testimony. You might give him just like a bunt single here or there. Those, that testimony is helpful to him, right? We just saw, I think those snippets from ABC are helpful. That's a big trade-off for Jack Smith to make, because I don't think, I mean, Meadows was Trump's right-hand man. And I mean, if you look at the things that he is listed, the overt acts that he's listed as being a part of in uh, Bonnie Willis's indictment. I mean, he's not just some passive person just trying to do his best, you know? I mean, he was, let's remember that based on Cassidy Hutchinson, I mean, she was really talking about him being, um, intimately involved in this plan to overturn the election, including, by the way, uh, frequent contacts with the so-called war room. And the war room was where Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon and some of these other unsavory characters were um, operating. Um, so, you know what I'm saying? Like, sure. I get what you're saying that, you know, Jack Smith might just be like, I'm going, like, I'm going to the top. That's what matters right now. That's the danger to the Republic and I'll do what I have to do. And I guess that, that, that might make sense. But I do think that, in doing that, Meadows is really getting a lot. Yeah. Well, it pays to have a great lawyer and actually listen to him. I mean, look, I, and that's part of the calculus that Jack Smith is thinking. I mean, unlike the other bozos in the in the January 6th case, including the unindicted co-conspirators, Meadows had like a serious lawyer, like somebody like I would consider hiring, okay, for myself if I was in those shoes. So, and like... He maybe the doc, we don't know exactly what all the documents and so forth look like, right? And what the testimony would look like. But 
they I, they if I'm right about what is happening here, and this is purely a theory, just so everyone is listening. In other words, it's possible that Jack Smith gave him immunity. That's really the only other possibility that I could see um, is that he gave him immunity. Um, but um, I mean, he could have been, he could, I suppose, give him some deal where he's going to flip. But I would think he would have written the indictment differently if that was the case. He would have written him into the conspiracy. So I think. The, but but I think it, I'm likely right that it's just he's just a witness. That's my gut on it. And and if that's the case, I just think Jack Smith made a decision that like fighting Meadows is a bridge too far. Better to have him in your side, lobbing grenades at Trump. Um, and and I think ultimately that's a sort of you have to make tough choices to to be a good trial lawyer. And the prosecutors that try to bite off more that they could chew often fail. Um, and so you have to understand and draw a circle around things. You have a narrower indictment. And, you know, we talked last time about the difference between the Jack Smith indictment and the Fonnie Willis indictment. I think I said it's like a scalpel versus a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's working with a scalpel. And in my experience, if you've got a really high profile, difficult um, case, that's that's the way to do it. Um, and so. I respect that. But for Meadows, the irony is, just to get back to the funny, well, this is, it segues us here. Um, you know, of course, we should know that that didn't, that didn't do him very much good. Um, given, you know, with the funny in the, in the funny Willis world, in fact, he is indicted there and she's just indicting everybody. And so he's going to have to deal with it. Um, and whatever deal he made with Jack Smith or whatever, you know, careful positions he took there is not, you know, saving him at all from, um, indictment and, and a likely trial in, you know, in the Georgia case. And we're going to talk in the next segment about what he's trying to do in the Georgia case. But, um, if his, you know, defenses to try to get, you know, this out of Fonnie Wills's, um crosshairs doesn't work. What's the downside to him cooperating with her, too? I mean, if he's already told his story to Jack Smith, then I don't know. I guess what's like, why would he go to battle here? I mean, it's it's literally the same testimony, really. Yeah. There's two issues, I'd say. There's a few. One, obviously, I, I do think he cares about not being seen as a toady against Trump. I mean, that the irony is I don't I think he's going to probably learn, although I'm not an expert on this. But everything I've seen suggests that you're either with Trump or against him and being half in and half out doesn't work very well. OK, mm-hmm. you're he's going to be seen and painted with the same brush and viewed as a rat by those that crowd, the MAGA crowd anyway. But I think he wants to seem kind of like how Pence, right? Pence tried to play it like. I'm not against Trump. I'm not saying he should be prosecuted, but, you know, well, he shouldn't have overthrown the. But how is that going to work? Because you just said that Smith is going to use him he as a star be. And witness. So is Pence, by the way. Pence is testifying against Trump. Okay. So then, th- then that bridge yeah, is I just burned. think he wants to say he was not a flipper or whatever. But the, the other thing, the other advantage, the other thing that he has from the DC case that's not going to translate well is in the DC case, he's describing himself, the care, how, uh, one of, one of the words that's most used by lawyers, like if you did a word, word cloud at a big law firm, uh, and you're like, what word is used the most? Characterized or characterized is like a high, like would be like one of those, it would be very large in the word count. Very favorite, yeah. one of the favorite lawyer words. So I'm sure 
the way that Jack Smith characterized Meadows' conduct makes him sound like he's like a bystander, right? He's like sitting there eating popcorn, watching the bank robbery happen, even though he was probably in the bank, right? Um, and and Fonnie Willis, the way that he'd flip for Fonnie Willis, he's going to have to say she's not going to take that sort of careful, that kind of uh, of charitable, careful approach. I think she's just going to be like, "You're in it. We've indicted you. If you want a, a cooperation deal." You better say you're a criminal along with this guy and you had a criminal scheme. And I think the irony is it like contrasts what, what he's trying to do in the Jack Smith case. I think it's very interesting. Um, and that's why he's, I think he's going to end up trying to fight the Fonnie Willis case, knowing that it's way further down the pike. Um, and maybe he'll change his tune later on down the line. But for right now, I think that's 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 where he's going. Yeah, because in that case, the ship has sailed. Like, she's already named him as a defendant. So there's no way, like, she's not going to write around him. I mean, she, she didn't. <laughs> so his only option is to be willing to, to plead and flip. Yeah. Yeah. And the fancy DC lawyer clearly didn't get very far in negotiations with Fonnie Willis. He's just like, yeah, okay. Uh, you know, see in court, right? I mean, that, that's where that went is just, you know, the lawyer probably tried to come up with some care, you know, do the same two step that he did with Smith and that didn't work with Fonnie Willis, which is interesting. It will see which approach ends up paying off in the end for those prosecutors. We will see. Okay, so Renato, I wrote in my Substack last week. Um, they the uh, articles and reporting about um, definitely Meadows, and I think there might be some others that are trying to get their cases removed from state to federal court um, had surfaced, and I had talked about how I took federal courts with a professor who shall remain unnamed, who is completely incomprehensible. And the, like for an entire semester, every class consisted of her drawing buckets on the chalkboard, lots of buckets and lots of arrows going from one bucket to another. And I had no idea what was going on. Well, at least she showed up to federal courts. Mine was the last semester of my third year, so I'm not. Same gonna... here. Same here. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I don't know. My attendance record was uh, very, very uh, pristine. So yeah. So we're in the same boat, but um, it's not. This is not rocket. This question is not rocket science, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess we could at least explain, maybe better than that unnamed professor, what's happening here, um, which is. You know, uh, Mark Meadows really, first of all, does not want to be in state court. Okay, um, it, you know, it, facing a state prosecution, he'd much rather be in federal court where he's probably going to get better, treated better. And he didn't want to be prosecuted pool, at the all. The jury pools are different. Yes, that's 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 the jury. Wow. Are okay. By the way, now that's you sound like a trial lawyer right there. Gosh, <laughs> that is, that's exactly the first observation. Yes. That, wow. That was good. That's exactly Thank right. Thank you. Um, that's a big I did, deal. I did learn something in law school. 
Yeah, no, that's a big de- de- deal. In fact, that's that maybe I wasn't top of my mind, but yes, it, that that should have been because that's exactly right. You're going to get in a in a Fulton County jury pool. You're getting Fulton County, which I'm just going to take a wild guess uh, was not Donald Trump's best county in uh, Georgia. Um, you're in if in the uh, the northern district of Georgia is like the entire northern half of the state. You're going to get a lot of you know white suburbanites uh, and and probably even some rural folks who are going to be more favorable to Mark Meadows. I mean, that's the bottom line uh, there. But also, he doesn't want to be prosecuted at all, right? He's trying to find a way out of this. Yeah. Uh, and so he filed a motion along those lines. Yeah. And just to go back to law school and our first year of civil procedure, I think you had Harold Coe too, didn't you? I No, I, I had Owen Fist, so I did not learn much about uh-huh. civil procedure, but it was a fantastic course. Life-changing course, but it didn't learn anything about procedure. Yeah. I actually learned some civil procedure. Yeah. And I mean, and in the mantra that we always had to say um, in civil procedure was federal courts are courts of limited subject matter jurisdiction. Um, and so in removing a case from state to federal court, uh, there has to be a reason for it to be in federal court. And Limited subject matter jurisdiction means that there are only certain kinds of cases that a federal court has the power to hear. So in order for Mark Meadows to remove his case from state to federal court, he has to make the case that that his case or what he's being prosecuted for falls within the power of a federal court to hear. and. His argument is that um, he was engaged in activity that uh, he was doing um, on behalf of the president, you know, calling these officials in Georgia. And under removal, um, he, a federal official who is subject, um, who was being prosecuted in state court, uh, in order to remove to federal court, that he has to meet two criteria. So he has to have been engaged in conduct authorized by federal law or the Constitution, um, and he must have done no more than what was necessary and proper to effectuate his federal duty. So basically what Mark Meadows is saying, that he was engaged in basically um, – Conduct that was authorized by federal law or the Constitution, um, and that's that is the conduct that he's being prosecuted for, and that should that belongs in federal court. Is that a good summary of his, his defense, basically what he's saying? He, I mean, his view is: I mean, if you're in Team Meadows, okay, I'm not saying this is my view. I'm saying this is the Team Meadows view. If you're in Team Meadows, if you're in Team Meadows, your view is. That, hey, my guy's just like, he's like, he works for the president and he's there to give him advice and stuff. That's all he's doing. He's like going to meetings. They're discussing options. They're discussing plans. He never suggested we should try to overturn the election. He's not there storming the Capitol. He thought that was a really bad idea, but you know, he's, he's not like a cop. Like he's just there. He's, he's not there to arrest the president. He's there to like give him his honest opinions, which he gave. 
And he can't be indicted for that. Like, you know, being acting in his official role is not, um, is not a crime that that's, I mean, that's, I understand that's not necessarily the, your, the reality view, but I'm just telling you, that's the team Meadows argument. Yeah. And Fonnie Willis is going to say, au contraire, mon frere, right. That, <laughs> um, you know, that you were engaged, like first that what he was doing was, political activity that was outside the scope of anything that was authorized by federal law. I mean, there's nothing in the Constitution that, you know, and I think more importantly, to the extent, because I think what he's pointing at is some language in the indictment where Fonnie Willis says that he was acting on behalf of the president. But even if that's the case, there is nothing in the Constitution that gives the president any authority to intervene in state elections. So even Meadows acting as his agent is not, you know, operating under any kind of, um, you know, federally legally authorized, uh, federal legal authorization or constitutional legal authorization. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can always, people in criminal cases act on behalf of others all the time. Uh, and, and I think the, the, probably to me, one of the better facts for Fonnie Willis, since it's Georgia specific and core to her indictment is the call with, uh, with the Georgia Secretary of State, Raffensperger, right? Where Mark Meadows is there. He's there for the call. He's like in there with Trump. And he's, I think her argument would be that he's lending weight against, you know, to trying to lean on Georgia officials. He's like, hey, this isn't just Trump acting on his own politically. Here is his government official, um, you know, the number one guy in the government side. They're with him, suggesting that this is the federal government pressuring you. It's not just Trump politically, right? So it's almost like from her perspective, he's abusing his office to try to lend some official credence to what is, as you point out, Asha is very a political act, and obviously, Fonnie Willis is charged as a criminal act. Yeah, and I wonder. I mean, I don't know if this will actually play a role in the hearing for that, but there are some parallels to um, some of the claims of executive privilege that Trump tried to make in this context, and that were smacked down by federal judges who basically said this was outside the scope of any kind of. Um, duties that you ha- had as, you know, a holder of the office of the president. This was political activity. Um, this was about your campaign. Yeah. Um, this was about your election. Like, that's not, you know, that's not the office of the presidency or your Article Two duties or anything like that. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think that, you know, I don't, th- I think that even if, we, let's say we injected some truth serum into the veins of the Meadows legal team, I don't think that they would say that this is like some sort of slam dunk argument. I think they, they, they have a, an argument that's not, not, it's not silly. There's something to it. It's, it's yeah. a legitimate argument to make. They're going to get their evidentiary hearing. They're going to bill a bunch of hours d- d- defending Meadows. And maybe they'll get lucky. Maybe the judge is going to see it that way. It's not, it's not an entirely impossible, which would be a huge win. And then they can, you know, the, then Meadows can buy them a bottle of champagne. And if they fail, then they've just delayed things by a few weeks or whatever they're doing, a couple of weeks. And they're fine with that too. That's like worth, worth something to them as well. Cause they want to push this further be, behind the DC case. They want to get through all of that 
kind of have Smith take whatever positions have Meadows sort of, you know, testify and then, then figure out what to do with Georgia, you know, for all there from, I'm sure from Meadows perspective, having Georgia, the Georgia trial as late as possible is great because who knows if Trump's going to be around, if Trump's right. already in prison by that point, like it may be that everyone's energy level changes uh, in a few years. And I'll just say a couple of things about, you know, the whole removal argument not being silly, even though it sounds like it's going to be, you know, a uphill battle for him to make. But I think we're, you know, we once again, like with the executive privilege arguments, like when you're using the levers of the government itself in order to um, personally enrich yourself, benefit yourself, you know, um, engage in uh, personal actions, you're blurring those lines and it makes some of these legal um, arguments really uh, complicated. And I think, you know, kind of gets back to how much we rely on norms um, rather than very, very strict rules. And we're really relying on courts to uh, parse that line that, you know, we hope and expect our officials to actually just observe on their own. And then the other thing that I'll say, and I remarked this to you before, which is not a part of the legal argument, but I'm just observing that the argument that Meadows was acting on behalf of, uh, you know, Trump and, and that this was, you know, authorized under the Constitution or, or federal law to intervene in the state election is really completely at odds with the entire philosophy that John Eastman was trying to advocate uh, in his blueprint to overthrow the election, which is that elections are only within the purview of state legislatures and nobody has any other role in them. And that's why they could come up with this other slate of electors and um, Pence could, you know, decide to, to use those um, instead. It's just an interesting, like, you know, if you're, if you're actually like trying to create some internal coherence, um, it's shockingly not there. Yeah. You know, I will say that, um, I think this, the, the, the Trump era has, has betrayed in many ways the all fundamental lack of consistency in the part of some conservative legal folks. In other words, when, when you and I were in law school, I used to get, I, I have a lot of friends who are, I would say, on the right wing side of things and conservative side of things who would give me their like lectures and lessons about their views of the law. And at least there was some sort of consistency in their arguments. But I learned later when Trump came around, like, no, it's all just about like they're willing to say all the stuff that Trump wants. And it's often just, you know, whatever's convenient for him at the moment. Well, I mean, and and the executive privilege argument yep. is one of those things, yep. right? I mean, they're they're all about the unitary executive, but apparently, um, when Trump leaves office, like the <laughs> Peanuts character Pigpen, he gets a little cloud of executive privilege that follows him around, you know, um, and not, not so unitary anymore, yeah, I guess, no kidding. right? No um, kidding. I don't know. So before we go, uh, you and I were talking a little bit about meditation. Uh, is that something you practice? So I get on and off the wagon. Um, <laughs> I have, I've, I've actually been pretty good about it the last several weeks. Um, so I, I use an app called Headspace and, um, it has a lot of different guided meditations and courses and, th and things like that. Um, 
but I, I've found it to be really useful. And when I'm consistent with it, it does actually improve my, my day to day peace of mind. That's interesting. I never considered or knew anything about meditation or mindfulness, but I had had, uh, I was, I'd had several years ago, I'd had cancer, cancer and I had gotten very sick at the time. And, and my doctor had recommended, um, mindfulness, uh, and meditation. And so I started getting into it. Um, I like you, I'm not like super, I have not been super religious with it, but I will say that one thing that it really transformed my thinking about things is that I learned and read a bunch about mindfulness at the time and the power that comes from depriving certain of your senses so that you can focus your mind and not have as much sensory input so that your mind can sort of clear and so on. And I do, I really make a big effort to do that. And so even I try to find opportunities to have mindfulness in my regular life where I will have, you know, certain activities I do, whether I'm working out or whether I'm driving or whether I'm getting my hair cut or something where I'm constantly trying, I'm trying to like have no, I'm closing my eyes and having no sensory input and I'm trying to focus and sort of clear my mind. Cause I have the sort of mind for, and I don't know if I, I, I imagine everyone's different, but for me, I, I tend to like think about several different things at the same time and everything is always going and it's very frantic and having an opportunity to slow that down is, is really helpful and important for me. Yeah. Um, so I think they call it monkey mind, right? Is that really, that's uh super interesting. Yeah. That's a term. I mean, for me that, I think that's really interesting that you feel like you're cutting out sensory input because for me, I feel like when I meditate, I really try to tune into like the weight of my body and the sounds around me and, you know, the like touch and take, like kind of just come back into my body so that I'm not like floating off into my various rabbit holes that I'm going down. And so for me, it's really been about the practice of creating a little bit more separation between me and my thought patterns so that when I'm like, start getting really caught up in something and, and sometimes it's just really dumb stuff, right? Like it's like the imaginary argument I'm having with my boss or like, I don't know, like just stuff that, and that when I meditate, like later in the day, if I'm driving and I'm doing that, like I'm kind of off and like getting myself all worked up because I'm having this conversation, imaginary conversation, I'll be able to recognize, okay, like come back, feel your hands on the steering wheel, look at the trees outside, feel the air conditioner, and it helps me to not get caught up. Um, and, you know, I think like create a little bit more separation between all of the things that are going on in my head and what what is actually reality right in front of my face. That makes sense. Yeah. That's interesting. I do think it helps give you perspective. I think one of the things that has come with age for me is having more perspective about what really matters and what doesn't. 
and I spend a lot less time <laughs> worrying about a lot of things in life that don't matter. You kind of understand what what you, you know what helps you get where you want to go and what is important to you, and you focus on those things. I, I think that, but I, I do think you know one thing that I have not done. And I'll, I will confess that this is part of the reason why when you mentioned meditation, I thought it was interesting. I've not really done like group stuff meditation. For me, it's like I have an app on my phone or I will make special times where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to close my eyes and spend the next 20 minutes doing, you know, whatever. But I have not, um, you know, I've not done like group, you know, things. And my my wife is really into that stuff. And she's, there's a, there's actually a, a, a thing near in the Chicago area called Soder World, I think, where it's a, a guy who used to be a pitcher for the White Sox a jillion years ago. It was like a hippie and has got a whole like all gardens and Zen, gar- like there's a Zen garden. She took me there this weekend. There's like a Zen garden. There's like all these different places for you to like meditate and there's a cool. labyrinth and all sorts of different things where you can sort of whatever, clear your mind and, you know, you're, you know, it, get in touch with that and there's race classes and all of that. I don't know if that I'll ever be that person, but I think mm-hmm. it's interesting and I'm sure it's, I'd be interested from some of our listeners, what they, you know, what they think and how they practice, you know, mindfulness and whether or not that helps them uh, in some of you know dealing with the stresses and, and all the issues that we have in life. Yeah. Um, I don't do it that either. I, I mean, for me, it's just like, like, just getting doing 10 to 20 minutes. I don't know why, like there's so much resistance. Like I like, there's always like stuff to do, but like, but yet I will go down like the social media rabbit hole for 20 minutes and waste time there. You know what I mean? But to carve out that time. So to be consistent about that is, um, something that I have to work at. Um, I have, I will say that for me, what I realized is when I took away all kinds of my rules or, you know, like for me, it was like, you have to sit in a chair and, you know, sit sit upright. And and I finally was like, I don't like that. Like, so I have my, this chair behind me, which is comfortable. I sit cross-legged. I lean back. Sometimes I'm holding my coffee. So like, I'm just like, I've let myself figure out what the best way is for me um, and not to get too caught up in the quote unquote, the right way to meditate. I think that's important is finding a way to work all of this into a routine. I'm big on routine personally. And something you can look forward to, you know what I mean? That's like what I started doing is like, why am I making this something that I don't like? Like I'm going to do it in a way that feels comfortable and appealing. I think it's great. And I, for me, every Saturday morning, I, for example, have different activities I do where it's all an opportunity for me to just think. And I try to exist in that space where I'm not, like I said, I close my eyes and that sort of thing. I think it's really helpful and important. Same. M-S-W-Media.